Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello listeners, thank you for joining me today. This is the final episode of my series, Paris of the Plains. Yay! Uh, This series has largely focused on boss Tom Pendergast and the city under his rule. Uh, We looked at his life and the lives of several of his associates and some of the major events of the early 1900s, such as the Prohibition, the influenza pandemic of 1918, and the Great Depression. Those last two were just very surfacey. Maybe someday I'll focus on them in more depth. Today's episode is going to feature Madame Annie Chambers, Queen of the Red Light District. Alright, first let's provide a little bit of context. Uh, So the Red Light District. I think all of you know what a Red Light District is, unless you're really, really young. And then, I don't know, maybe check with your parents and see if they want you to know what this is all about. I want to read this quote to you from uh, John Simpson's book, Prohibition in Kansas City, Missouri. Quote, It was impossible for a man to walk the streets of Kansas City and other cities at night without, and this is a quote within a quote here, without being accosted at least once by a former resident of the Red Light District. Prostitutes in these cities use doorways, vestibules, and even, in remote cases, church pews in lieu of well-ordered and clean bedrooms to supply their charms to those who will pay for them. End quote. Both quotes. Um, The man who made this statement did so in 1919, so hopefully that kind of helps set the scene for you and give you an idea of what it's like at this time. There were multiple local, state, and national laws against prostitution, According to Carla Deal, prostitution was listed as a public nuisance in 1860, then listed as an offense against public morals and decency in 1871, um, and that one was classified as a misdemeanor, and you could be fined $25 to $500. Uh, This is a quote here. Additional ordinances forbade the owners of taverns from employing so-called lewd women, women with the reputation of prostitutes, women who sang or danced in an indecent manner, even female bartenders, end quote, and be fined 50 to $100 for doing so. Historically speaking, Kansas City had multiple red light districts. There was one in the West Bottoms near the original Union Station, and a bit later one grew up in uh, the north end of the city as well, near City Hall. Um, that one's probably the most well-known. It ran from 6th Street to 2nd and Main Street to May Street. There was another one from 12th to 18th and Oak to Paseo. Um, There's also a lot of Scarlet Houses east of 12th Street along Charlotte, Oak, Paseo, and in the downtown that were owned by a man named Joe Williams. In 1900, the city recorded 147 body houses. In 1910, there were 47 in the market city um, sorry, try that again, City Market alone, um, employing 250 women between them. And in 1911, the city recorded 900 brothels. Prostitution, sex shows, burlesque, drag shows, and female impersonation 
which I don't know a ton about, but it seems like it's still separate from a drag show, although I don't really understand the difference. Uh, female impersonation was really common at vaudeville, and it even made it into some early film um, back when, you know, it was black and white, and um, they're what were called talkies at that time. You didn't actually have sound, you just had, like, your mouth would move and then words would pop up on the screen. It's very rough, but kind of interesting. Anyways, uh, y'all should check out talkies sometime if you don't know what those are. Um, these various shows, the sex shows, the burlesque, all of that, uh, were found anywhere that you could find alcohol. And so if you listen to the Prohibition episode, you'll remember that alcohol is in every speakeasy, bar, tavern, of course. Um, but it's also in pretty much every theater, and hotel, and a few other places. So 1913 saw the creation of the Society for the Suppression of Commercialized Vice. Now, I ran out of time, or, I don't know, for whatever reason, it didn't make it into my Prohibition episode at the beginning of the series, so I'm glad I have the chance to discuss them now. Their goal was basically to clean up the city, eliminate gambling, drinking, and especially prostitution. Of course, uh, if you've listened to all the other episodes, you know that they were not entirely successful, but they were very active, and they did manage to accomplish a few things. Quote, In 1918, the city council passed an ordinance against the, quote, body house, house of prostitution or assassination, end quote, as well as, quote, soliciting for immoral purposes upon the streets, end quote, end quote. Okay, so the... Soliciting for immoral purposes is kind of funny. I think that that implies that there's a moral reason to solicit, but, you know, take of that what you will. Um, so they, the society also liked to call out specific people and businesses in their newsletters for being prostitutes or for supporting prostitution. Um, and this is kind of funny. They were also anti-taxi service. I know it sounds really strange, but again, if you listen to the Prohibition episode, I mentioned taxis really briefly in that because it was so common at this time. When you come into Union Station, you get off the train, and as soon as you get off, you're like, oh, taxi, you're just waiting there, sweet. And then the taxi driver doesn't even ask you where you want to go. He's just like, I know where you want to go. And he takes you to either the nearest speakeasy or bar or whatever, or to one where he's got some kind of system going or, like, the more people he drops off, he gets some money back, right? So, the society stated that, quote, There is no question that the automobiles are a great source of moral delinquency, end quote. And I just think that that's funny that we're just like, you have to have a car. If somebody doesn't have a car, you're like, are you okay? What's wrong with you? But back then, they were so new, and they were, I don't know, it's just funny. Um, I would say that the society's biggest win came in 1923 when they, the city passed the Injunction and Abatement Law, which forced brothels to shut down, including the one owned by the star of today's show, Annie Chambers. Alright, so researching her was not easy. Um, almost every book that I looked at name-dropped her, and but it was really just a name-drop. They'd be like, oh yeah, Annie Chambers, and continue on. Or they'd drop like one little detail about her, and it was always the same detail. So I started to think, you know, I'm not going to be able to tell her story after all. She's really well known. I've heard her name for years. But, like, all I know is Annie Chambers. She was madam. That was it. Um, so I finally found a copy of an article written by W.G. Secret for the Kansas City Journal-Post on May 15, 1932, in the Missouri Valley Research Room of the Kansas City Public Library. 
And this article is exactly what I was looking for. It told her entire life story. Um, in the last few years of her life, she would invite residents to come to her house for a fee, of course. I mean, mom's got to make them money. And she would tell them all about the evils of prostitution and moral delinquency. I'm going to use that more often. I kind of like it, moral delinquency. Um, and she would just tell her life story. And so the reporter went one day, he listened to it, and then, you know, wrote an article about it. So it's really cool. A lot of the what's from the article is, like, direct quotes. Um, and it's just it's her story told from her perspective, which I really love. So she was born Leanna Lovell on June 6th, 1843. She was one of five children. I didn't find anything about her mom, so I'm assuming that means that her mom's a homemaker. But her dad was a farmer in the Kentucky countryside. And then he traded the farm for a 12-room hotel in Sullivan, Kentucky. And I think they kind of lived near Sullivan before that. Supposedly, and personally I don't put any stock in this story. I think she completely made it up. Um, it's one that she told herself as fact. And so therefore, multiple re historians have retold it. And uh, this is one of those details I said that, you know, this would be like the only detail that popped up. It's like this one and maybe one other. Anyway, supposedly, in her mid to upper teens, she went to this parade for Lincoln when he came to town when he was campaigning, and she was wearing this beautiful yellow dress and got spotted in the crowd, and then they're like, come on, and so she ended up riding in a float in the parade, um, not on the float with Lincoln, it was a different one, but afterwards, her dad's like, I don't like Lincoln, I don't like that you did this, bye-bye, and it kicks her out of the house. So, she went and lived with her aunt and uncle, that's her mom's sister and her husband, and uh, they made sure she got a good education, and she, you know, she must not have been too bad at school because she ended up teaching for a year, uh, and then moved back to Sullivan and continued to teach, but again, supposedly her dad's like, nope, don't want to see you, don't want to talk to you, nothing. Um, she met William Chamber and married him. I don't have a wedding date, I don't have dates for anything except for her birth and her death. Um, I take it back. I think I have one other date, but I'm sorry. There's just nobody had dates. Um, so I don't know how old she is, but my source said he was twice her age, so I'm hoping this was true love. He was a uh, master of construction for a railroad company, so he traveled a lot. He made pretty good money. They were married two to three years before they had their first child. Unfortunately, the child and I want to say it was a girl, died about a year old, um, and then it, it sounds like it wasn't that long after, a year, maybe two, she was pregnant again, um, but here is where my story has a lot of different details. Okay, so one source, let me back up, um, all of the sources agree there was a carriage accident afterwards is where it changes, so one source says that she was in a coma for three days. And one source says that she was in a coma for several months. I'm not sure which one it is. Personally, I'm kind of leaning towards she was in a coma for several months. Um, all of them agree that the child that she was pregnant with at the time was stillborn. So this sucks. But compounded on top of that, her husband dies. And again, we have a difference here. One source says he died in the carriage accident. 
The other one says that while she was in the coma, he was on a job site and fell off a piece of construction and died. And then, um, one of my sources also mentioned that during this time, her dad lost his hotel. And why they felt the need to include that, since she, the dad wasn't a part of her life, I don't know, but... So, she's lost her husband and her child, that's, that's really the important part. She wakes up to find out that they're both dead. And I imagine the grief was just overwhelming. She decides, to hell with it, I'm going to go, I'm going to live my life however I want, and I'll just die young. I can respect that. But she moved to Indianapolis, and I could be wrong here. I don't think I am. I think what happened here is she gets there, and she's living for a little while, and then just runs out of money and has no other option and falls into prostitution. Um... I feel like even today, that's probably a super common story. I know back then, it's extremely common. So, she becomes a prostitute. Um, and this is kind of funny. So, she fell in love with one of her customers. And he's like, oh baby, I love you. I'm going to marry you someday. There's only one problem. He's already married. And he has like two or three kids. Well, one day, the wife found her and basically attacked her. They're out on the street. I don't know if they're like just walking down the street or at the city market or what, but she walks up to her and she's like, you better leave him alone or I'm going to get you. And Andy's like, okay, backs off and uh, immediately breaks up with him. But not long after that, she's like, okay, I got to get out of here. She and some of the girls that she's with in Indianapolis moved to Kansas City, except she when she moves to Kansas City, is no longer a madam. Um, I'm trying to say again. She's no longer a prostitute. She becomes the madam of the house. So she moved in 1869, and her first house was down by the levee, down by the river. It's really not great. It's pretty small. Kind of smells down there. But she moved uptown after Hannibal's Bridge opened in um, 1871. So Hannibal's Bridge, um, I feel like I mentioned it in the Stockyards episode. If not, I really should have. Because this bridge was a huge building project for the city. And it brought in all this um, trade because the uh, rail railroads were also using it. So she moves to uh, 201 West 3rd Street. This place is a lot better. It's a cute little college. The rent's only $30 a month. And then the landlord's like... Oh, I see what you're doing. And he ups the rent to 50 bucks a month. He didn't know beforehand that she was madam. Um, it wasn't long before she bought the cottage. And then she also bought the cottage next door. And she connected the two of them. So, in... Uh, it's, it's really not a long time. I think it's like a year, according to my source. It makes it sound like it's only a year or so. Um, you know, she's only been in Kansas City for two or three years at this point. She's got to be a really, really good businesswoman to have saved up all this money. Because um, after she buys the cottage, she actually tore them down and built a newer, bigger one on top of that site. Um, and when this place opens, it is so opulent, guys. It's basically the Ritz. It's a 25-room mansion. The first floor has a dance hall that is lined with mirrors of French plate glass. Sorry, no, a little bit of a tongue twister. French plate glass, and there's a giant crystal chandelier hanging from the ceiling. Okay, so um, 
if I haven't mentioned it before, and I don't think I've had cause to, I need y'all to understand the significance of this room of glass. So, we're in what's known as the Gilded Age during this time. It's um, approximately 1870 to 1900. So, post-Civil War, the South is wrecked, right? Well, the North is like, we're doing really good. And all of these people start investing in railroads and Western expansion and oil, and they become super rich. That's where you get, like, Vanderbilts and, and folks like that. And we're out on the frontier, so we have, like, a, a miniature version of that. But no matter where you are, okay, coming back to this, no matter where you are, so during this Gilded Age time, glass is really expensive. And to have a room of walls of glass... Is just like this extreme and extravagant display of obscene wealth. Because there's no reason to have this glass. It's not like a little looking glass. It's a wall of glass. There's also a dining room at the back of the house that has the, another super, super large mirror. This one was custom ordered and made. cost $5,000. It's lined with engravings, like really nice engravings, and... The border has all light bulbs, um, blue light bulbs. Each room has really heavy, well-built, solid wood furniture. Um, the downstairs salon is decorated all in red and gold, and it's often referred to by historians as done in the oriental style. Uh, the floor is made of sycamore wood. The fireplace is tiled. Even the front hall is tiled. And... Her name, Chambers, is spelled out in extra-large blue letters in the tile. Her personal bedroom had, quote, vermilion satin draperies with tasseled borders and satin quarter-length drapes with tasseled points, end quote, along with a, quote, heavy gilt framed photograph of herself, a bookcase with glass doors covered by a curtain, and a brass bed that she had made to order, end quote. And I got one more really nice long quote here for you uh, to describe the house. Um, this is from an article by Jim Lapham uh, from the Casey Star in 1974. Annie, Annie's furnishings were of the style that said opulence in that era. Carpets, plush furniture, boldly designed wallpaper, satin drapery, chandeliers and mirrors and paintings, some pastoral and some nude. Each room was furnished with a bureau, two chairs, and a bed so comfortable it was said that some men paid good money just to sleep in it. End quote. So next door to her house is another house owned by Madame Lovejoy. And just a short ways down the street from them is another one by Eva Prince. These are the three most well-known madams of the city. I couldn't find... Any in personal information on Lovejoy or Prince, um, there was a second-hand account of Lovejoy from a short summary of a memoir written by one of her working girls. So part of the reason why I can't find information on them is the nature of sex work. It's just, it's not discussed, it's not recorded. But there's a part of me that wonders if it's not because Lovejoy and or Prince were women of color. Absolutely no evidence to suggest that they were. It's just personal speculation on my part. Lovejoy's house um, 
is described in one source as opulent as Chambers was, but the description is almost exactly that of Chambers' house, so I wonder if the author didn't get them confused. There was another woman in one of my sources who was known as the Duchess of the Red Light or something like that. Um, I didn't write that down. I wish I had, but uh, I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool title, Duchess. Um, so Chambers sent out invitations for the opening night of her new place. 108 men arrived. She also requested from the city and received two policemen to act as bouncers. Apparently, she was really motherly towards the girls. She interviewed each of them very carefully before she hired them, even warned them away if she didn't think that, um, I don't know if they were well-suited or if they really wanted it. I don't know. But she was she was very careful in her, in her interview, and according to a few sources I read. Um, she also loved to brag about finding husbands for each of them if they're like, I want to get out of the life. And that um, once the they married and went away that they also corresponded with her regularly. She was really proud of that. There was absolutely no brawling allowed. If you got into a fight, you were gone, you weren't coming back. And she prohibited the girls from smoking in the parlor. Now the guys could and did, but not the girls. The girls could smoke up in their rooms, I guess. Um, according to one of my sources, quote, the average price for services at a brothel was $1.50. Chambers girls regularly charged the clientele as much as $10 under the standing operating rule in which the madam received half, end quote. So her ladies made as much as $200 a week. Um, they also received commissions from any liquor that they convinced the men to buy. And they were allowed to keep any gifts given to them. Um, that was pointed out because apparently it was also really common at the time for the madam to be like, oh, he gave you this necklace. It's mine. Um, so, you know, say what you will about the morality of it, these girls were making really good money. Um, I'm betting that it's much better money than any other job they could possibly have at this time. I know it's better than what the ladies down at the cannery in the stockyards were making. So despite largely unchecked spread of vice in Casey under Pendergast, there were regular, quote, raids on houses of ill repute. And under the city ordinance 291, which forbid, um, it defined and forbid, quote, lewd behavior and commercialized sex, end quote. Um, Annie and her fellow madams were fined each month under this ordinance. But, you know, in comparison, the money that they're making is so worth paying this little fine and paying, you know, protection fees. Um, in 1921, the city shut her down under this ordinance. She was vacationing in Hot Springs, Arizona with her husband at the time. Um, so at some point she got remarried um, a, a second time to a William Kearns and uh, later divorced him. <clears throat> Actually, what really happened was she gave him $18,000, a lot of money, especially back then. And she's like, go to Cincinnati, follow your dream or whatever. He opens a store that sells photographs and electric pianos and stuff like that. And then he finds a girlfriend and is like, bye Felicia, and divorces her. I think she was happy to get rid of him. That's why she sent him to Cincinnati. But anyways, in 21, their vacation in Hot Springs, she finds out they shut her down. And she's like, alright, well we're going to get back to the city. 
Um, they were planning a trip to Europe at the time, so that trip gets canceled. She runs back home. She reopens her business and, quote, she violated the injunction which had been obtained under the common law principle that a house of prostitution is a nuisance and was given a jail sentence. She appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, which decided that, quote, keeping a body house is not a nuisance in any sense of the term, end quote, end quote. So she reopened, um, but only for a really short time because she shut down again in 23 um, by the injunction of Bateman Law that I mentioned earlier, at which time she turned her place into a legitimate boarding house. Guys, in 1923, she's 80 years old. Uh, it's the same year that a minister, Reverend Frank Buckley, and his wife move into Lovejoy's place next door. It had been vacant for several years, and the building was at that time owned by Frank Enos, so he's renting it out to them. They expanded it a bit, and it became the uh, City Union Mission. Unfortunately, this particular building um, no longer exists, and neither does Annie's. Annie's was razed to the ground in 1946. But Annie, at this time, she's in a wheelchair, she's blind. Um, I think she's just super, super lonely. And she becomes really good friends with Buckley. And in 1934, at the age of 91, she becomes a Christian. So she died on March 24th, 1935. After her death, Mrs. Buckley burned all of her paintings, except for one, a nearly 12-foot-tall nude painting of Chambers herself. And this was all done at Annie's request, supposedly. Um, this painting was placed in storage and then later stolen. In 1963, a miscellaneous nude painting was discovered by C.H. Bathhouse in a building on Truman Road, and he absolutely 100% believed from the depths of his heart that this was the missing painting of Annie Chambers. Um, but he was never able to get anyone to authenticate it and say definitively that it was Annie. Uh, still, this painting hung in a cocktail bar um, down on the plaza for several years. No idea where it is now. Um, after the, the cocktail bar shut down, it just disappeared again. Um, but there is a mirror from her dance hall that still remains. It was donated to the National Archives here in Kansas City in uh, 2009. And it's still hanging up on the wall in there. I see it every time I go in there. Um, it was donated to the archives by Dale Barnhart. His father was Max Barnhart who was the director of the Opportunity Farm owned by the City Union Mission. And this mirror actually hung in Dale's house when he was growing up. So that is the end of today's tale and the end of this series. Before I sign off, let's talk sources real quick. As I said, I got the majority of Annie's story from this article that I found in the Missouri Valley Research Room. There were some other articles um, that they had available as well. I looked at um, Women Who Changed the Heart of the City, The Untold Story of the City Rescue Mission Movement by Dolores T. Berger. It had like two pages on her. Um, there was also two articles on caseyhistory.org, um, the biography of Madame Annie Chambers, 1843 to 1935, and Secrets of Chambers. There's an article titled The Social Evil in Kansas City, Machine Politics in the Red Light District on PendergastKC.org. And then last but not least, two books that were really helpful to understand 
just, you know, the, the city at the time period and um, the red light district in general was Prohibition in Kansas City, Missouri, Highball Spooners and Crooked Dice by John Simpson and, oh sorry, I think that's Simonson, um, and Storied and Scandalous Kansas City, A History of Corruption, Mischief, and a Whole Lot of Booze by Carla Deal. Love these books. I highly recommend them. They're super easy to read. They're awesome. On the website, I'm going to have a uh, couple pictures of Chambers, um, also on Instagram. So thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, rate and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Um, the website is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, whatever, uh, my email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest as homegrownkc. I know that um, financially we're all in a tight spot right now, but if you want to support the show and you can do so, um, you can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged that day, and then on the first of every month afterwards, it's only $5. Everything that you give me goes back into the show. Largely, it pays for my gas as I do research. Um, I will also uh, give you a shout-out here on the show if you become a supporter. So, Mike and Linda, thank you for your support. If you cannot or just don't want to uh, commit to a monthly donation, you can do a one-time donation. That feature is now available at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. And last but not least, to local libraries, which another me to... Ugh, sorry, let me try that again. And last but not least, to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all of my research. Thanks for listening.